Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. When Kelly and I first conceived of this podcast, we talked a lot about skills and credentials, dissecting the qualities needed to do this work. As we conducted these interviews, this intellectual analysis became embedded in something larger. We learned that leadership for broadening participation is rooted in our capacity to encounter, respect, and learn from our differences, and to create the conditions for others to learn as well. We learned to appreciate how some of the best role models for this are found in family relationships, as we talked about in Be the Cousin and Be the Auntie. The more we listened, the more we heard that leadership is as much about who we are as what we do. It's not that the intellectual analysis lessened. In fact, the topics of the last two episodes, identity and code switching, required that we think more deeply and to appreciate anew the complexity of these leadership skills. But on the whole, these interviews made it clear that we can't just think our way into this kind of leadership. Leadership for broadening participation requires our whole self and our whole community, and a commitment to be better than we are today. This is what Carolyn spoke about as she summarized her experience at the end of her interview. I would want to emphasize the role that community has played for me. People that I've learned from, the support that I get from communities, social justice communities is huge. If I have a bad day, I got half a dozen people I can call on the phone and just you know, say, you know, this is happening and this is not okay. I'm so frustrated about this. And so I have those meltdowns every now and again. And then I, you know, I get to call people up and I get to have the conversation. And they're like, yep, that's exactly what's happening right now. And it sucks. And, but yeah, you know, you, you just got to keep making progress. I, I am eternally amazed at the grace that is granted to me and to people like me by women of color because they don't owe it to us. We shouldn't be asking for it. And yet it is almost inevitably given. And that, to me, is such, a, such an act of love on their part and such an act of amazing, amazing ability to continue to connect with people who've deeply hurt them that I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by that sometimes. I think it's truly incredible. And the amount of gratitude that I feel for that is huge. And the amount of gratitude I feel for everybody who supports me and continues to you know, work with me even when I mess up and continues to believe that I am worth the conversation and worth calling out, because that's a huge gift. You know, when people call you out, it's because they believe you can do better and they don't believe you're a lost cause. And so I, I take that every day with a huge amount of gratitude for the, for the emotional labor and the work that they do to help keep me accountable and to help in my learning and to, you know, make sure that I am doing better every day. This is not a gift that is taken lightly for sure. Helping each other be better every day, and not simply in the rainbows, smiley faces, and unicorns kind of way. As Carolyn described, this is a profound commitment. We weren't specifically thinking about Carolyn's interview in the seminar Kelly and I led for all the participants in the Golden Network, and yet once again, the topic of love emerged. Here we listened to Karen, Darren, Brene, and Danielle explore the meaning and role of love with Kelly extending this discussion into the concept of becoming one's better self. 
in the conference that I just went to at one of the uh, diversity-related events, one of the faculty members gave a, a summary of things that had happened so far. And one of the things that she talked about was her experience of if you want to change a community, you have to love it, essentially. Uh, and she referred to this as the beloved community. Where is the love directed? Is it, is it a love of the people or is it a love of the concept of social justice and equality? I find DEI issues so broad and you deal with so many dips, different groups of people culturally, you know, gender-based, you know, you name it. There are groups of individuals and groups who I don't even know. I've never even interacted with. And so to me, it often seems as like, I, I love the concept of equality and social justice because oftentimes to me, the people are, are, are sometimes ambigu- ambiguous. I was going to say, I'll speak a little personally because I, I feel like it maybe draws in both of what Darren and Karen said and that I, I definitely have a love for the students that I work with and I feel like they help keep me doing what I'm doing going back to Karen's comment in that I feel like I am slowly learning to love the community in which I do my job, but that is a very slow process. When I say my larger community, I guess I'm thinking of my institution. There are definitely pockets of individuals at my institution that I love and that I draw strength from, but as a whole, when I look at my institution and where we are and where we're trying to go, there's just a constant budding for me, of a constant back and forth of can I do this? Do I want to do this? And then I think about my students and I think about my smaller community and just what it means even when one of us leaves our institution and what we're left with. And that's the duality of, of love. You know, yeah, it gives you the positive, but it also gives you the pain and frustration and everything else, you know, and then I think we can all relate to that and understand that. So yeah, the things you, the things you cry the most about are the things you're the most passionate about. Passion really means to suffer for. And when you contemplate what that looks like, right, to suffer for, that could mean you're suffering because you're giving away your time that you really wanted to devote, you know, to being at home with your family, right? And you're putting that into your work, you know, in the extra hours, right? Or, you know, you're suffering in some capacity with, you know, time or money or, you know, just giving your heart over to something and, you know, allowing that to take hold. I thank you for this conversation because it's opened up a lot of thoughts and emotions for me. And I wanted to go back to something that uh, Darren said earlier about loving justice and loving social justice. Uh, I'm just getting back from our uh, leadership institute, and we had a very candid conversation about, quote unquote, white liberals, who I think would fit into that category of loving social justice but not necessarily the people for whom they are fighting for. And individuals who stand for justice and equality and and equity, yet would be the the very ones microaggressing against people of color or people with different sexual orientations, et cetera. So I think that there is a distinction between those of us who love the idea of justice and love being about social justice versus those of us who actually do have uh, a sense of of love and and commitment and passion for 
the individuals for whom we fight. So that's kind of banging around in my head. And the other thing that you brought up, Danielle, about suffering and that being what passion is for, I just wanted to share a story with you. We were in a session and we were asked to divide ourselves by race and ethnicity. And I was the only person of color in the room with about seven or nine white women. And uh, we were asked to tell each other what the other doesn't know about our lived experience. And then the other could ask the first group questions. That was a group of one. And so I shared some things and someone said to me something to the effect of um, my passion for people of color or or my passion to just to keep going and, and to persevere. And I didn't say anything, but I was so insulted in that moment. And I thought that there are limitations to what I am willing to do for the cause, though I love the people who I, I fight for, and that I don't attribute everything that I fight for to perseverance and doing it just for them and, and, and suffering in silence, but that it is also that thing which calls me to be the better Kelly. It is this uh, experience that the universe has presented to me that I am required to do in order to show up in my full humanity in this body, in this life that I've been given. And so it's a it's much bigger, I think, and, and this whole idea of what we're talking about in terms of love is much bigger than something as simple as we have to keep going and we are persevering. I think that it could very well be that there are particular individuals in this world, whether we are conscious of it or not, who take up this calling to be our better self and that this is the form in which we are called to be our better self. Leadership for Broadening Participation at its best is rooted in this commitment to one's own learning, growth, and humanity. And from that place, we are able to help others be better every day as well. Carolyn, and those in the seminar discussion, called this commitment love. To better understand why, we turn to our conversation with Jason. We actually interviewed Jason twice, as our very first interview and as our last one. During that first interview, we were still in our intellectual phase, noodling about the whys and wherefores of leadership credentials, and Jason, who teaches about credentials in his classes, jumped right in with us. But somewhere toward the end of that first interview, Jason dropped the word love into the middle of things. We're not going to revisit that interview here, because Kelly and I were both so unprepared for that moment that we slid right by it. But it did lodge in our consciousness, especially as this theme repeatedly emerged. It was with some relief that we found Jason back on the interview schedule three months after our first conversation. The rest of this episode is the conversation that Kelly and I had with Jason in that second interview. This time, we lost no time in asking Jason to tell us why he was talking about love. We're just going to jump right into love. I love it. Uh, This is great. I relate this to being a teacher. Like, I think that to be a good teacher, you have to love students like the students you teach. Um, And I think that the reason why is because teaching is relational. 
Um, and I think that DEI work is related to teaching because it's very relational. I don't think you can make any kind of meaningful difference if you don't have a true connection, relational partnership between you and, and the people you're working with. It's a little bit like, you know, the book, Other People's Children. This is a book talking about white teachers teaching kids of color. And it's like this idea that, like, if you have that mentality, it doesn't work. They're your children. But if they don't look like you, if they don't come from the same sort of background you come from, and you think of them as other people's children, I don't think you can actually teach, quote unquote, other people's children. And I think that it's very similar to this kind of interaction where if you see DEI work as interacting with, I don't know, other, right? The idea of other, I don't think you could have a real impact. And it has to do with that idea of love. If you love a group of people, you don't think of them as other. You don't think of these children as other people's children, right? If you love these children, then you see them almost as your own children. I think what, what we also talked about was that this is very odd for STEM. And it is not a quality or a trait that one naturally associates with excellence in STEM. To be excellent, one must only love one for the work that they do either at the bench, in the field, etc. But love for humans or love for someone else, that part of ourselves we're trained to leave outside of STEM. Or to only apply it if I'm making a mini-me, right? The person who comes into my sphere so closely that they understand everything that I've done and I'm going to hand off my legacy to them so they are an extension of me. I will love that person and it's acceptable in STEM to do that. But even that makes it even harder for us to get to what we're talking about because that's love for similarity. I think to love... You have to assume that the person is inherently good and give them sort of that benefit of the doubt because you're dealing, you know, you're, you're interacting with someone potentially who you don't really know so well. You know, when I'm thinking about teachers approaching students, a teacher who loves their student has to think, you know what, I think you're inherently a good person. I think that's like sort of a, the ground level thing. You have to have that. Because I don't think you can love someone if you just think that they're inherently bad or inherently faulty or inherently something's wrong with you. So I think that that's sort of like the ground rules. You have to assume that this person is inherently good and worth getting to know. Or if, if one's love is unconditional, then you can be imperfect. And I can still have this love for you and positive regard for you. There's plenty of people I think of who I'm like, you know what? I just don't, I don't really like you because our personalities don't quite fit. I don't see myself ever hanging out with you socially or anything like that. But because I'm doing the DEI work, because I care about the health of the science world, I love you. Like, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to imagine that you're just, you're inherently worthy and worth knowing. And that's, that's kind of what I take to the situation. That means that I am not creating separation. I am not othering. I'm not investing in the separation. 
Instead, I am willing to be the bridge for the existing separations so that the wholeness can be achieved or experienced. But to do that, I can't go in and dictate what people should already know or how they're going to learn those things. I have to love them well enough to create the conditions where they can learn it the way that works for them. And that patience then for me becomes another credential. What is intriguing to me, listening to you talk, Jason, is that we, you and I have both been attracted to education and educated within that discipline, enculturated within that discipline. I'm wondering if one of the contributions of education as a discipline is that if you're going to learn how to help others learn, you have to first love them. Absolutely. I think that's the starting point of my philosophy of education. If you call yourself an educator, I think you have to have that as a first premise. Like, I didn't come up with this on my own. (laughs) This comes from... William James, a uh, series of talks he gave. William James is considered the father of American psychology. And so he gave a bunch of talks at um, Harvard. He was a professor of philosophy and he birthed psychology in the U.S. at Harvard. So the psych building, the psych department at Harvard is now the William James Department of Psychology. And so he gave a, a series of talks to teachers and it's, it's called Talks to Teachers. And in that series of talks, he ends all of his talks with that admonition. I think that if you want to set yourself up to be in the best possible place, to becoming the closest thing you can be to a perfect teacher, you have to assume your students are fundamentally good and you have to love them. I remember reading that for the first time ever and going, okay. You know, what does that mean? And it took me many years of studying that, reading it over and over again, um, and teaching it, because this is part of my Ed Psych course. This is is what I start with. And teaching it to so many different people that it's now part of, I feel like it's part of my DNA. And so those words hit me uh, very profoundly. It it forms the core of sort of my identity as as a teacher. And have you brought this forth in your gold project? Uh, no, I, I don't think I have. Wow. My, my mind's going, how, how do I do that? Other than just, I guess, embody it myself, right? So like at the workshops, during the journal club meetings that we have, uh, in any interactions that we have with the participants and with the GEOTS team, I, I, that's just how I interact with people. Your question, Kelly, made me think, are you saying that I should somehow systematize that, make it part of what people learn? I do. Uh, and I think especially when we're talking about STEM faculty and broadening participation. And so many times we are seeing institutions or faculty within institutions attempting to adapt programs or adapt strategies as if one can just pick it up and just implement it, just off the shelf. And there are key elements of a successful program that are not being translated in the adaptation. And we're left wondering 
consistently all the time. Why is the needle not moving? We flipped the classrooms. We've done the bridge program. We've done undergraduate research. We've done all of these things. And institutions are very proud. Departments are very proud. We've done, we have this, we have this, we have this. And the numbers oftentimes are still not moving or they're not moving enough. I think until we start to articulate these other nuances about this work in diversity, equity, and inclusion will continue to have these kinds of mismatches. We talk about it all the time with HBCUs who outperform in, in graduating African-Americans in STEM. And we've gone through the, the whole gamut of what it must be, high expectations, nurturing environment, et cetera. Yet our colleagues at predominantly white institutions can't replicate it, can't make it happen in the same way, at the same kind of level. We haven't done a good job of codifying what is it that we do in an HBCU that we're not doing at a predominantly white institution that makes it so that African-Americans will do better in STEM of all disciplines in STEM than if they went to some other institution. So I think that the more those of us who do this work and are successful at it get in touch with what makes the difference for us and clearly articulate it so that our colleagues have a bar to reach that's real and makes it unquestionable what it really takes. Yes, (laughs) I think you got it exactly right. On the one hand, I think that somebody could easily say, in geodes, you're teaching your participants to do, but you're not implanting the love. And so without love, all you have is just movements, right? Going through the motions. I think the professors who taught me about issues of DEI genuinely loved me, genuinely invited me into that space and genuinely compelled me to be vulnerable. I don't think that love and seeking objectively something are incompatible. I think love is something that allows the engine to keep going, right? The motivation to keep going. And I think that objectivity is about pursuing a question, asking questions, posing hypotheses, and testing them, and being open to having those hypotheses being disconfirmed. And so if you love science and data and you are in some way compelled to seek answers from a more diverse pool of data sets, I think that love sort of fuels the motivation for you to do better. Love fuels the motivation to be one's better self, to help others be better, to do better science, to embody the act and art of being an educator. This is leading broadening participation in its full sense, a kind of leadership that goes beyond counting and representation, goes further than ideological standoffs, and that gives meaning to the claim, we are committed to diversity. This is the kind of leadership for broadening participation that makes real change. We can say with confidence that everyone we interviewed, 
as well as the other leaders who emerged from the Ideas Lab we told you about in the intro episode, is this kind of leader. And their five NSF-funded projects reflect this investment. We have one more topic to address before we bring this podcast series to a close. While the capacity to make real change is key, change itself is not enough. Again and again, change is set in motion but is not sustained. In the next episode, we talk about leading indicators of change and why they are so important. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Thank you.